My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I am speaking with Jennifer Thornton. She has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership development uh, over her 20 plus year career as an HR professional. Uh, she began her career in operations and, and worked her way up in several different organizations leading to um, a transition into human resources where I believe that kind of developed into a passion for leadership, leadership development, which led to the forming of her coaching agency, which is 304 Coaching, where she helps organizations uh, develop their leadership talent, um, helps them grow. Uh, she's led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Uh, in order to expand new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships. Now, as we go into this conversation, we'll touch on quite a few things, but one of the things I, I want to make sure that we touch on is, is culture change and, and really um, how organizations can do that. And uh, more specifically, large organizations, because once, you know, a culture is kind of ingrained, it's very difficult to, to make shifts. And um, being as you are an expert in this, and, and you've helped many organizations do this, um, and you, you're also a keynote speaker, you have done quite a bit in the professional world to help organizations develop their leadership teams. So, uh, first, I'd like to get a sense of who you are, your influences, maybe your, your life growing up. Uh, I know that you were born in Oklahoma. Um, maybe let's, let's start there. Awesome. So yes, I was born and raised in Oklahoma and, um, you know, great family. I, you know, can't say enough good things about the opportunities that my family provided. And I have a brother and he's got some, you know, fantastic um, adult boys now. It's hard to believe that they're already adults, but it happens fast. And, you know, what's funny is I grew up in a very, very small town. And then um, when I was probably about 15-ish, we moved to another even smaller town in Oklahoma but I always knew I wanted to leave. I always knew I wanted to live in a bigger city. I always kind of felt like a little bit of a fish out of water. And, um, you know, I, I uh, moved to the big city of Oklahoma City. So that was my first big, like, I'm gonna live in a city, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> but compared to where I was, that was a big city. But um, I moved around a little bit for work after that. I landed here in Dallas, where I am today in um, 2000. So it's been a lot of years here. And um, but then also had the opportunity to live all around the world um, in short term um, work assignments. So um, I wanted to be in a big city and I've had the opportunity to see some of the biggest cities in the world, which has been fantastic. Tell me a little bit about your your family life. What uh, you know, your your mom and dad. What what did they do when you were growing up? Oh my gosh! So I grew up in the oil and gas industry, and in Western Oklahoma, that I think was about it. <laughs> you could work in the oil and gas industry or something that was related to the oil and gas industry. So um, everyone in my family um, has worked in that industry in some capacity. Um, you know, anywhere from mud engineers to drillers. My dad was a fisherman, um, which means when you know something gets stuck in the pipe, and you know they're you know, they're putting things down there, a bit breaks off or something. A fisherman's a person who tries to figure out how to get it out to save the well. And so, you know, he was always in an on-emergency call. And I remember, you know, back before cell phones, he had this like thing in his truck and it would like beep when there was an emergency and you could hear it in the house. And man, he'd run as fast as he could out to that old radio. Um, so he did that. And my, you know, my mother worked in the banking industry. And, you know, everyone in my family always were hard workers. They, you know, took care of things. You know, everyone in my family is one of those like kind of over-organized, check the box, you know, everyone kind of did their, did their thing and did, you know, what was expected and what they were supposed to do. And um, which, you know, gave a lot of stability. And I think in today's world, you, you, know, you talked about culture um, also, I think stability and consistency is one of the best gifts you can give to cultures. And I think when I look at my childhood and how I grew up, consistency and stability was definitely one of the gifts I received. Did you play any sports in high school or in, during oh. your childhood? I didn't. I do not enjoy team sports or individual sports, um, which is funny because I'm rather tall and everyone always wanted me to play basketball until they saw me with a basketball and they for sure did not want me to play basketball. So that was a good way to get out of any sport, just try to play it. And they sent me on their way where I really had a fantastic time is I enjoyed um, debate teams. I enjoyed, um, you know, being on the um, like the accounting type um, groups. I enjoyed a lot of programs and really groups where we, you know, worked on, you know, thinking about how to, to grow as individuals or community organizations where we could help the community change. And that's really where I enjoyed spending my time as a young adult and really where I still spend my time today. I still love working in the community. I've been a neighborhood president for more years than I should have. I'm still trying to get someone to take that position from me and no one will. Um, but, you know, I participate in quite a few organizations here in the city of Dallas and I'm really passionate about the community. And so, yeah, that came from, you know, early childhood days. And um, I loved also fashion and I still love fashion today. And honestly, all I wanted to do when I grew up was to work in the mall. And good news, dreams come true. I got to work in the mall and I spent, you know, my entire career um, up until I left to start my own business in the retail industry and have done a lot of different types of positions inside all of those years. But, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I got to do. I see that you went to Southwestern Oklahoma State. Uh, what did you major in there? 
Yeah. So I went to Southwestern Oklahoma State. I measured or I, um, I, I focused on business. I actually left college after one year and it wasn't for me. I didn't like it. Um, what was so funny is I was actually a straight A student <laughs> and I hated college. But the reason why is I, that first year I took all the classes I wanted to take. So I was in business management and accounting and economics and all of these things that probably most people didn't want to take. But then I I'll never forget those moments that you won't forget, right? Um, when I was talking to my counselor and she's like, you have to take biology at some point. And I'm like, why? And she's like, because it's just a requirement. I'm like, but that doesn't make any sense to me if I have no interest in it why? And so we kind of argued about that a little bit. Then I had to take a PE class and I lived in Western Oklahoma. My choices, no lie, were bowling, golf, or scuba diving. And I'm like, I'm in Western Oklahoma, scuba diving, like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, what does that have to do with anything? What is scuba diving when you live in Western Oklahoma have to do with my career? And I finally just kind of stood up and said, you just want my money. That's all you want. And I was working at the mall. I just got promoted to a manager. And so I just walked away from it and have since never gone back to get a degree. Now I have more certifications than anyone should have. I am a lifelong learner. I am always in a course, an education course. In fact, right now I'm in three education courses at once. I don't know when I find time to sleep because I'm always working on you know, my schoolwork. Um, but yeah, college just wasn't for me. And I think that in today's world, you know, college is a little bit more flexible. You can, there's more options of things to study. Your um, electives are not, you know, scuba diving in Western Oklahoma. So I think I would have probably enjoyed a lot more today, but back then it just wasn't a match for me. Let's talk a little bit about your, your influences. Um, maybe some of the people that mentored you professionally and really helped you develop your leadership philosophy. And maybe you can talk a little bit about your leadership philosophy. You know, that's such a great question. I've had a ton of fantastic mentors along the way. And even some of my not good mentors actually have been fantastic for me too, because it, you know, not only do you want to learn about what you want to be, you want to learn about what you don't want to be. And you're always a blend of your experiences. And so you know, when I started in, in retail, you know, started at the mall, you know, managing my store, which most people don't realize all those people at the mall, they're managing multi-million dollar businesses. And I was making hiring decisions. I was making PL decisions and payroll decisions and scheduling and merchandising, you know, at an early, you know, early 20 something, I couldn't go to a bar, but by gosh, I could run a multi-million dollar store back then. And you know, what people don't realize is there's so much leadership being trained in those environments but I always got my results in a different way than my peers. And I always felt different. I still feel different. I still look at things a little wacky and a little different. Um, but now I get paid to look at it different than you know, stuff I used to get in trouble for. But I looked at building businesses through talent and not through competition. And that has always been how I've worked instinctively. And so though my peers and I would compete, I would typically land on top. I would typically be the top one or two performer in any KPI. Um, but that person I was going against was competitive and I didn't even care about them. I cared about my team. 
I cared about the people I put together. I cared how I treated them. I was very good at finding people that were unique and putting all these puzzle pieces together to create something really great. And that's how we, you know, made our numbers for a lot of years. Um, fast forward, you know, you get promoted, you're in district regional type role, um, had great, great leaders. And um, through those times, a lot of leaders that were very much perfectionist, um, very much check the box. And that was good for me for a while, but then became more of a trouble for me because when you're too focused on checking the boxes and you're too focused on um, what's right and wrong, you can't really see innovation. And that's something I'm really focused on today. When I think about my leadership philosophy and how I teach it today is I teach to be excited about failures because without failures, you can't have innovation. And I grew up in a world of retail where failures were not okay. And you missed one little tiny thing, or you made one decision that someone didn't agree with, boy, it was going to hit the fan and it wasn't good. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, you know, how I grew up in the retail industry. And then as I progressed and, you know, moved my way up, I got a chance to work with different types of executives, some that were much more open, some that were much more excited about that innovation piece. And I kind of saw myself finding myself in my own leadership by working with people who are really open to a conversation, open to thinking about what is, what if, what could be. And um, so those were um, some of my best years and really led to my international experience, which was fantastic. I mean, there's no rule book when you get dropped off in a foreign country and you're told to figure it out and you're the only one there. There's no corporate office. There's no other employee. You know, you're the head of HR. So you're the first on the ground and the last to leave. And um, yeah, there's no check the box when you get dropped off in China and don't even know how to get to your hotel room. <laughs> um, but it was fantastic. And I learned a ton. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, what started to shape my, you know, later years of my career. Tell me a little bit about your, your experiences abroad, um, really interacting with these different cultures and, and how you were able to navigate that. I navigated it by knowing that everything that I thought was weird or offensive, I was just as weird and offensive to that person. And I just had this conversation with a woman the other night and she was talking about how much she went on a trip like a group trip and they went to China and she really didn't like it. And I said, why, you know, why, why didn't you like China? She's like, they were so rude. And I'm like, well, tell me more. And they weren't being rude. She was looking at it through her American eyes and how we use hand gestures or how we use an enunciation. And so she was making these assumptions that these people were rude to her and not at all. And so I said, you know, I've told every executive taken overseas, as much as you are different and weird or offensive, you're equally back towards that person. And so you just have to remember that this culture is not yours. You're there to learn and observe and accept. You're not there to judge and change. And that was, you know, kind of the first way I approached it out of curiosity and anything you approach through curiosity seems to usually go pretty good. I'm, I'm curious about maybe something that stands out as a, um, I don't know, an important lesson or an important opportunity in your career that really kind of shifted things for you, if there is any definitive moment in your career um, that maybe led to this, this passion for, for leadership? 
Um, I think there is a t um, several. Um, one of my very first um, retail jobs, I had a store manager who was, she was a bully. I mean, you know, we didn't have that language back then, but that's definitely what she was. If it was, we all had our set days off and on your day off, you were the one she hated. And then the next day when you were working, the person who's day off, she hated that person that day. And, you know, she was really toxic and um, said some horrible things to people. Um, she really, and we had such a great um, environment minus her, right? So the rest of us could keep it together. The rest of us really, you know, rallied around. So our store actually had fantastic results despite her because we were so connected. And I always just kept thinking if they would do something with her, what could this place do? Um, and so really kind of learning how to navigate um, with a bully very, very, very young in my career um, was instrumental. And I think of her often. I've tried to actually hunt her down on social media. I've never been able to find her. Um, so I kind of always wondered what happened to her. Um, but hopefully she's not leading, leading um, groups of people anymore. Let's really pray that unless she's changed a lot. But um, so that was pretty pivotal and me understanding that that person does have impact and that person does influence people. Um, you know, there's other times in my career where it's like, you remember the, you remember what the room looked like, you remember who was in it, the smells, the, the feelings, and you know, the, the next big change for me, really one that changed my entire life was the call to, to go international. And it, it was out of the blue, out of nowhere. You know, I was happy domestically. I actually had the U.S. and Canada um, for some of the HR functions that I led, and I got this phone call from our chief HR chief HR officer, and he was like, "Hey, you you want to go to Hong Kong for a few months?" I'm like, "Why?" And he's like, "Well, we're gonna you know buy back our our stores there from our franchise partner, and we don't really know what we're gonna get to into, so we're gonna send a handful of people over there to figure it out. You want to go?" And I just said yes. And I mean, I said, oh, I mean, it was like my body just responded. My brain didn't. And he's like, now you can't say yes and not go. And, um, I, and he said, you know, call Cameron, my partner. And I was like, okay. And so I was actually getting my hair done at the time. And so I text him and I was like, Hey, do you mind if I move to Hong Kong for a few months? And he's like, no, I'll feed the dogs. And I'm like, fantastic. Um, and so I said, yes. And that changed everything about me. It changed. I always tell people it changed my DNA. Um, it built confidence, it built re, um, resilience, it built, you know, the ability to figure it out. Again, you get dropped off in a foreign country, you have no choice but to figure it out. And when you do, it just builds this instinctive assurance about yourself that you can figure anything out. And so that has really propelled me going forward since that day I said yes and got on a plane and, you know, went to Hong Kong. Now, one of the things that, um, I noticed in, in reading about you is that you you talk about a talent cliff. Mm -hmm. Can you um, can you tell me what that is and and why that's important? Absolutely. So the talent cliff happens to organizations all of the time, and it really is um, most common in a fast growing organization. And so when you think about a fast growing organization, they either have a service or a widget. And they, um, the people who, the person or the people who start it are highly capable. Um, they have to be highly capable or they wouldn't have been able to get this company off the ground or find this service or widget. And so as the company starts to grow, because these individuals are um, better or stronger and smarter and better than kind of the level of the business. So they're pulling the business with them. 
Um, what happens over time is because it grows so fast that companies start investing in that service and widget and they don't equally invest in the team. And then the company continues to grow and then the business actually outgrows the skill set of those running it. And it happens all the time. I see it all the time. And then instead of saying, whoa, we need to help these people figure it out, we get mad at them because they're not doing right. They're failing. If it's the owner, they may be going into high compliance and do what I say. And, you know, why did it not work and blaming? And, and you just get into this fear cycle and that then obviously people aren't going to want to work for that. So your best and brightest decide to leave because they're not going to work in that environment. You're left with those people that maybe aren't as talented or just will say yes. And they let you stomp in storm around. And, you know, once your talent's gone and you've, your talent's kind of gone off the cliff, your business is right behind it and it's heartbreaking and it happens every day. I kind of want to rewind a little bit because it just occurred to me that you, you've said several things that um, really struck me. Um, so you were asked to go to Hong Kong to rep represent your, your organization, the company, and uh, get things squared away. You were uh, a fish out of water, essentially. You're in a different mm -hmm. culture, different country, uh, navigating that. And I'm the mindset of there is no um, just throwing your hands up and going up, oh, well, couldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't manage this issue. So, well, it was, you go there, you've got a mission, you figure it out, you accomplish it. But you've also mentioned a couple of things about failures and em embracing that because those are opportunities to grow and to develop. Now, I'm sure that your time overseas and in these different cultures and especially, you know, the first time that you've gone overseas to well, to Hong Kong, I'm sure you had some challenges and, and probably felt like, uh, fell on your face a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How did, well, maybe you could talk about some of your experiences and, and maybe how the leadership that you were working for helped you to remain confident in your abilities. Yeah. You know, great question. You know, I think about the executives, um, the EVP I work for at the time, he had a lot of international experience. So he understood the complexities of it and he was really good at guiding. And, you know, going back to kind of our original conversation around consistency, he was very consistent in the way he made decisions. He was very consistent in how he responded when you approached him. And so when I was in some of those difficult decisions, I had kind of a baseline of how to make a decision because I had an executive who I could predict how they wanted to do it. And I knew if I made the wrong decision, I wasn't going to be blown up because I made the best decision I could with the information I had and the experience I had at the time. And, you know, he was all about experimenting and things will work and things won't work. And so that really gave me the freedom to do that. And you could call him and, you know, the, just a little pause in that. The thing about working internationally and you have an entire team internationally, it's not like working in an office where you can pick up the phone and call your boss and say, Hey, what do you want me to do here? You never know what time zone someone's in, if they're awake or asleep. 
And so you don't have that benefit of calling and saying, what do you think I should do on the spot? You usually have to make that decision because who knows if that person's awake or asleep. Um, and so I could make decisions. I could go to him and say, here's what came up. Here's the decision I made. Here's why I made it. You know, here's what kind of what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? How do you want me to move forward? And, you know, he, again, would be like, you know, I think this is great. I would have probably done this over here and here's why just do it next time all is well. And so it was really about having more of a partnership and conversation, but also having consistency and making those decisions. And so that allowed me to go out and, you know, get mud on my face. I did it all the time, but it made me not get scared of it or stop. I just knew I was learning and growing and that's okay. And it's okay. It, it feels so different, you know, when you, in, at work, when you have like a little misstep or you make a decision, you look back and think, oh, I could have made a better one. You typically kind of hide that and you don't tell anyone and it kind of festers and it doesn't feel good inside. Um, and it actually will shake your confidence because it's staying in there. But when you talk about it, you know, this is what I learned. This is how I'm going to do it different. You know, I made the best decision I could at the time with my experience. That's okay. I'll make a better one tomorrow that just changes your brain and changes how your brain works and changes how you take in information and learn. And so, um, you know, that was really how I did it is I had, you know, a fantastic leader who wasn't going to beat anyone up for making the best decision they could at the time. Now that leads into, well, something that I, I talk about in, in my coaching and, and, uh, leadership courses is, you know, I, I lay out this, um, a structure for developing effective teams and and sound leadership and and trust and all that and really it all begins with effective communication as the foundation and that's really something that you just touched on is having the ability to communicate and having honest dialogue and be honest about you know maybe some mistakes that were made but also not just being honest about the mistakes you made, but sharing those mistakes so that others don't encounter those same pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering at what point in your career did that develop? Because I, I've found that it's not really, uh, it's not a natural kind of behavior when people make mistakes, they tend to, you know, um, I don't want to let anybody know how I messed up. Yeah. So can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about that and maybe how you incorporate that communication portion in, in your coaching? Yeah, absolutely. So I do think that that probably changed for me in that time period we talked about. And a lot of it was because I had a leader that said it was okay. Um, and my own philosophies and how I work on it today is I actually kind of back up from communication and I think a, a leader's job is uh, fear reduction because fear reduction, the more you can reduce fear, the more access someone has to their prefrontal cortex or frontal lobes, which means the more creative they'll be, um, the more, um, emotional control they will have over their decisions and all of those things. And so we've always been taught to communicate, communicate, you communicate, transparency, all these right words we're supposed to do. But what's interesting about that is typically how we've been told to communicate is very fear-based. 
And that is why we struggle in the workplace. That's why people struggle to be honest and say, I screwed up or be honest and say, I don't think that's the right direction to go. And in every office around the world right now, there are people sitting there going, this is a horrible idea. They are saying nothing because they've been taught they can't say anything. And those decisions are being deployed, costing companies and organizations millions and who knows, even the bank. And so, you know, with communication, it's not just the fact that we have to communicate, we have to communicate in a way that reduces fear in the brain. And we have to really watch our language because the way we were taught to lead those best practice leaderships that are all out there, they were designed, you know, in the mid 1900s, you know, during um, industrial revolution, the world is not that way anymore. Information comes in way too fast and there's a lot more um, noise around it. And if we still try to lead in the way in which we've been told and people still sell books around it all the time right now, you know, I'll pick something up and I'm like, oh my gosh, like that doesn't even match today's world anymore. These people are making millions off these books. If we teach people that everything we know is actually broken and we have to think about the neuroscience of the brain and we have to think about our language in a different way then that's when we can start to really communicate and really start to make a difference. And people can start to be honest in the workplace and say, Hey, that was probably an 80%, but 80% was good. You know, do we really need hundred percent here and, and really just open up those conversations and, and do things a little differently in the workplace. That, that makes me um, think about a, a book that I, I studied um, called Primal Leadership by Dan Goleman, yep. talking about uh, emotional intelligence and uh, those different different components of emotional intelligence, and um, just, that's that's really interesting that you bring up the the fear factor. I, I'm wondering what advice or what instruction or or coaching that you do in organizations when you're trying to help them change their culture, but how you coach them in communicating effectively. Yeah. You know, the first thing I do with any client is we, we get, um, we have a little, uh, I call it, you're going to get a little mini science, which is funny. Cause you know, I hated science back when I was a kid. Um, so I was like, we're getting a little science lesson. And we, we very early on, we talk about how does the brain actually work and how does that impact your business? is if an executive can see how it impacts their business, their ears are wide open. <laughs> if I'm just talking about we should be nice to each other and we should communicate, their ears aren't always as open as I need, the, I need them to be. So we talk about, you know, organizations who understand, you know, how the brain works, how, what their results look and how it changes. So we always kind of start there. Um, but we definitely spend a lot of time thinking about the conversations they're having in the workplace. How do they want to have those? Who are their key partnerships? Why are they the key partnerships? How do you build key partnerships with a reduction of fear? Um, because, you know, when you put a bunch of EL team members together, typically there's a lot of issues, right? Because everyone's fighting for their space. Um, everyone's business impacts someone else's. And so there's a lot of judgment and a lot of um, just kind of hunger games, right? I'm going to win and you're going to lose. And, you know, we have to start breaking that down um, and we have to change the language. So knowing your key partnerships are a ton of it. I mean, there's just so much we do. Um, you know, we talk about, um, 
you know, the language that we use around just saying, you know, someone comes to you and they've got this great idea and they're super excited and they're like, oh my gosh, I think I've totally solved it. And they tell you, and you're like, that's a horrible idea. I don't like that. You know, most executives go, nope, that's a bad idea. Not how we do it here. And what that does is that unconsciously tells someone my ideas don't matter. When I bring ideas, no one's going to listen to them. And that kind of hurts. So I don't think I'll do that again. I think I'll sit at my desk and be really quiet. And then that's the same executive who wants to know why no one's telling him the truth. Um, so it means just a simple switch of saying to someone, I don't see it, but change my mind. And so you're still being honest. You're still saying I'm not on board with the decision but I'm open to hearing it. I'm open for you to tell me your research. Tell me why you think this way. Tell me why it's different. And I'm truly open to listening. You have to, can't just say it. You have to actually want to hear it. And so when they start to say, okay, well, here's why I think this will work. Sometimes there's a great idea in there. Maybe it's a hybrid idea. Sometimes the boss actually changes their mind is like, you're right. That's amazing. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, and sometimes, you know what, it's not an idea we go through or go forward with, but we still had the conversation and we still taught that person. I'm open to hearing it. And so, I mean, that's, you know, kind of a small example of some of the language that we work on, but that can change a company. If you are a person who isn't willing to have your mind changed, then you are not hearing the right information about your business. We've covered a lot of ground. Is there, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you, you believe is is important for the audience to know well not just about leadership and culture change but you know maybe some of the things that you offer in in 304 coaching yeah yeah so we offer um a whole suite of um, leadership education all of it is built on our um our change behavior model um, we want to make sure that people actually change when they come through our programs because people spend a ton of money and a ton of time and nothing changes and that's not how you change a culture. You have to. So we have a very specific um, way in which we educate and train. Um, we do skills, competencies. We do the mental work through coaching or self-coaching. And we also do implementation. When you learn something, you have to know what to do with it. And that's the piece that most programs are missing. Great. I read a book. Now what? So we create um, this model and everything's built around it. And then everything is also built on the neuroscience of the brain and the adult learner and making sure that we're working with the brain and against the brain. So we have a lot, uh, a wide range of services that we offer, but at the core, that is who we are. Um, I think when I think about what to leave your listeners with and, and something that they can take away and actually do something with is really understanding um, the fear cycle. Because as a leader, if you are in fear, then you will lead with fear. Therefore, fear will be created in your team. At any given time, your team is in fear and you have to be able to recognize that so that you can lead them out of it. And, you know, we could, I could spend a whole two hours or more talking about the fear cycle, but at its basics, when something happens to us, our body instinctively throws off fear chemicals because that's how we stayed alive through evolution like me, not like me, um, all of those types of things. And so if you're trying to change a culture and you go, okay, we're going to change a culture. Everyone's like, Ooh, not like me anymore. That's a problem. Right. And so we kick off those, um, fears and stress hormones and chemicals. Um, and then those chemicals create thoughts, how you feel about it. Um, you know, what, what if you think you can do it though? So all the thoughts get created and that's kind of the first step of the fear cycle. And you can exit the fear cycle at any stage. You just get on the off ramp and get off. 
but most people don't get off. Most people stay on it. Then after that, those thoughts create feelings and those feelings spur more of those chemicals that you probably don't want. And then when those chemicals, those fear chemicals start to increase, again, you lose access to your prefrontal cortex, which is where all of your emotional control and decision is. So then you um, start focusing on just the problem and it's all problems. You can't see anything good. Then through that cycle, you end up going into the fact that there is no ideas. Like I, I don't, there's no solution. I'm, it's just, there's no solution. Um, from that, when there's no solution, you move to overwhelm. And overwhelm is actually when people usually kind of start to talk about it. And so you've got to learn to start to see the signs early because you don't want someone to get all the way to overwhelm before they verbally say something or outwardly show it because you are way down the cycle at that point. And then from overwhelm, if we don't try to course correct, get them on the exit ramp, they will go into blame. The fun thing about blame is it feels really good because you've been carrying all this emotional weight and all this overwhelm, this frustration. And so when you move to blame, not my fault, my boss's fault, it feels good because you get it off. It, it's like, you no longer are responsible. You've given up your control, but you've also said, I'm no longer responsible. And I see um, leaders do this all the time. They start to blame their team when they don't know how to manage their business. And um, again, it feels good, right? Their problem, not my problem. And then once you've given up control, obviously you give up and, and you quit from there. And so watch yourself in that cycle. You can run that cycle in 30 seconds. You can run that cycle over two years, but wherever you are in something you're dealing with, stop and pause. Where am I in this? Am I just focusing on problems? Am I early in this and I just don't feel good about it? I got to get out of that so that you can see the forest through the trees and you can do something um, to be impactful, to um, make a great business decision, to drive your results, to have a better relationship. You can do any of those things, but you've got to watch the fear cycle in yourself and you have to watch it within your team. If an organization wanted to have you come in and, and do a keynote speech or you know, an event, um, how would they get in touch with you? And what are some of the things that, that you typically talk about when you do your keynote speeches? So we talk about a myriad of things, um, but um, at the basis of it, we, we are always talking about fear because fear is the driver. It's how we stayed alive. And we have to understand that, um, you know, fear is just a chemical reaction. There's no truth to the danger. And, you know, so that's always kind of where we start because, and then we take it from there, you know, it depends on what that organization needs. It depends on, you know, the objectives of what's going on, but we take everything from a neuroscience standpoint. And if, you know, if your organization is interested in that and needs some help, especially around fear and innovation, you know, we love to talk about those things. We'd love to help organizations with those. Um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Jen Thornton, ACC. Or you can find me on our website at 304coaching.com. Awesome. Well, Jen, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking about, gosh, just so much. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that you agreed to, to come on and talk with me. And I think that everything that we covered today is going to be extremely beneficial to those listening. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a ton of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. 
please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.